Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Northgate friends. Hey, how's it going? It's good to see you. It is such a gift for me to get to be with you all. Like One of the things that I love since I've gotten to be with you so many times over the last several years now is just walking in the foyer and so many familiar faces and getting to say hi, and it's always a gift and always a joy to be with you all. Uh, if you have a Bible on you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 or pull out your phones and follow along in the Bible app there. Or if you aren't following along that way, everything will be on the ginormous screen behind me. You can follow along that way. We are in the Mrs. series that we have been in for 472 weeks walking through Matthew <laughs> together. And it's a good time. We're, we're actually, we're right in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's longest recorded sermon. And in the way that I understand and read Jesus's life, ministry, and teaching, this is at the center point of it. This is at the crux of what it means to find and live new life in Jesus. This is at the crux of what it looks like to be a part of a new kind of community that Jesus is forming. This is the center point of that. And And for a while, for a long time, this has been a hard sermon to sort of wrap my mind around, to make sense of. And then and then something about it began to click. Because a sermon is difficult because it's actually disrupting the way people understood what it meant to live. It was disrupting what it looked like to find full life. And in this disruption that Jesus is creating, it needed some sort of framework to help it make sense for me. And here's here's how I began to like make sense of it was a few years ago at Christmas, we got a game. And the game was like you would pull out a card, and it would have an object that was written on the card, and then you had to draw that, and people had to guess that, which is a pretty typical kind of game, right? But the unique way that this particular game did it is that you would put on these goggles that would distort everything that you could see. In reality, you and I both know they're drunk goggles, is what they are. In fact, here's a picture of my daughter wearing them at Christmas when we got them a few years ago. Um, <laughs> so you'd have these like lenses on it that would just totally distort everything. You couldn't get the, pic- the, the paper, like you'd reach for the paper and you couldn't find it, your hand's going like this. You'd get a pencil and you'd try and draw a straight line and it would like get all squiggled. And, and I began to play this sort of like, like thought experiment. Maybe you could do this with me. I began to imagine... What if I began wearing those goggles every day, all day long? What, what would begin to happen? Well, at first, it would, like, mess me up a little bit, right? Like, at first, things would be all out of whack. At first, I'd be walking funny. I'd be trying to grab the paper, and I wouldn't be able to do it. But what would happen is, over time, I'd start to adapt. And over time, I'd start to get used to it. This way of viewing things that's distorted, for me, it would start to become normal and then, and then I began to imagine, well, what if everyone who's around me, what if my family, what if my community, what if the people I was doing business with, what if the people I was running into on a day-to-day basis, what if they all were wearing those goggles also? And so what would begin to happen is this way of viewing and perceiving the world would become normal to all of us. It's distorted, but we wouldn't realize it's distorted because we've gotten so used to it. Imagine, imagine that it's like that for a few decades like four decades go by. It's like 40 years. Been wearing those goggles all day, every day. The people that I'm around are all wearing those same goggles. And then somebody comes, somebody comes around and they come to me and they take those goggles off. Everything would look weird, right? 
That it's like, oh, this isn't, this isn't right. But then that person is telling me, no, that's actually the way things are supposed to be. That, that's actually what life is actually supposed to look like. That, that's actually what's, it's all been designed and created to be. And imagine that that person goes around and they get a whole band of people who they start removing all of their goggles. And they all now see differently. They all now understand differently. That group of people would seem like an anomaly to everyone else. The way that they talk about the world, the way they describe the world, the way that they like interact with what it means to be whole in the world, it would seem like this anomaly because everyone else is used to wearing these goggles. This, this is a bit of what's happening in this sermon. And this is a bit of the reason that sometimes a sermon, we get out of whack a bit in how we understand it and how we make sense of it and what we do with it because we are so used to wearing the goggles and Jesus is disrupting things in the sermon and he's saying like, this is what it looks like when you take them off and you live in these new and different ways and what our most natural reaction, our most natural inclination is to go and to put the goggles back on. And so what we end up doing is that he's giving this disruptive message and we end up interacting with it in old ways. And so before we get into the passage that we're going to look at today, I need us to back up a little bit and to be reminded of something that we've already looked at together. It's actually what Dr. Joe Grano walked us through. There's this line, there's this line in Matthew 5.20 that I think actually frames this whole section of the sermon that we're actually in right now. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to re-unpack this whole passage because Dr. Granite did a fantastic job with us a few weeks ago. But just a few reminders. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they were these religious leaders. They were the people at that time that you would look up to and you thought, I could never, I could never live as good as they do. They meticulously followed the law, the rules, the outward expressions of their religion. They meticulously followed that. And when Jesus, when Jesus says your righteousness, he's saying that your right living needs to be better than theirs. You would look at them and be like, there's no way that I can do that. But the thing is that that would be looking at it with the goggles on. Taking them off, one of the things Dr. Grana helped us to see is he said this. He said, you can do all of the right things and not have the right heart. And if you do all the right things and don't have the right heart, you are actually not doing the right things. He helped us to see that your righteousness surpassing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is not about doing more right things than they do. That's with the goggles on. But when you take the goggles off, it's about having an internal transformation. It's about having a kind of internal transformation that begins to work itself out in a kind of outward living. But the focus, the focus is on the internal transformation. And what Jesus does then with this next section of the sermon is he begins giving pictures and illustrations as to what that begins to look like. Here's what it looks like when this internal transformation happens. It kind of looks like this, and it kind of looks like this. Remember, these are pictures and illustrations. So he's not, he's not telling you this is all of the ways that you will be transformed, and this is all of the things that will look different. No, no, he's just, he's igniting our imagination. It's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this. But because they're pictures and illustrations, they are also not a new law. It's not a new set of rules. And that's what we do far too often with this sermon. 
He's not saying this is a new law that you follow. Just do exactly what I tell you to do here. That would, again, be to revert backwards and to put the goggles back on. It's important for us to understand that this framework, this framework of taking the goggles off before we get into the illustrations that we're going to look at today, because we're going to look at two illustrations that he gives. And specifically, the first one that we're going to look at is one that we most often in the sermon put those goggles back on and look at it through an old framework, missing, missing this way that he's actually calling us to an internal transformation, giving us pictures of what that looks like. So here's the first illustration he gives. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It's not the first illustration, the first one we're looking at today. I mean, let's be honest, like, it's the only one that matters because it's the one that I'm talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that was a stupid joke. That, okay, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Those are heavy, hard words, aren't they? And these words of Jesus, when they have been read or when they have been heard through that old framework, they have created quite a bit of pain in the church. Maybe some of you have experienced that pain. These words have been used by pastors to tell women that they need to stay in emotionally abusive and even physically abusive relationships and marriages because they don't have biblical grounds for divorce. And so what they did is they took these words and they turned them into new rules, into a new law. You need to do these right actions, do these right motions, and you are not following it right, so you need to stay in this marriage regardless of how abusive it actually is. Or sometimes, sometimes these words have been used to create a kind of like scarlet D that people have been divorced kind of hang around their neck in the church. And if you get remarried, except for this one instance, if you get remarried, essentially if you're going to take Jesus' words, like then you're living in perpetual adultery. And so you're second class, you're lower class in the church. When these words of Jesus are turned into a new law, they're often used in ways that cause hurt and damage. And before we move on, can I tell you if that has been done to you, I'm so sorry. The words of Jesus should never be used in a way that creates more pain and more hurt. And when it is done in the church, I will tell you that that is not from the Spirit of God. Now, the problem is that when you're reading it that way, you're reverting back to this old way of thinking that Jesus is radically redefining. So so let's see if we can work out together a little bit of what Jesus is getting at here by understanding the context that Jesus is speaking into. So, in the first century culture, that the first century Jewish culture that Jesus is speaking into, divorce laws were obviously very different than they are today. It was a patriarchal culture where men held all of the power, and as a result of that, men could divorce their wives for any reason. It was often referred to as the any reason clause in the Jewish law. In fact, in one branch of Judaism, it was actually said that if your wife burnt your dinner, that is cause for divorce. It's true. You can look it up. So it was incredibly easy for a man to divorce his wife, but it was actually incredibly difficult for a woman to divorce her husband. Which is why, by the way, if you pay attention to the language Jesus uses here, notice that it's directed, the language is directed towards men and towards husbands. 
He is the one who's doing this to her. Anyone who divorces his wife, does this to his wife, makes her the victim. He is addressing men and the the power that they hold in the relationship in that time and that place. He's the one who's doing this to her. And when the man would divorce his wife, he could often go and remarry, oftentimes without any kind of stigma attached to him. But the woman was a whole different deal. She would be considered damaged goods. She would be considered marked for life. And in that culture... Without a husband providing for you, you are often relegated to a life of poverty and of begging and sometimes prostitution just to get by. And so for what could be seemingly inconsequential reasons, any cause that the husband found offensive, the woman would then have to live the rest of her life in shame, having lost her place in her family, likely living the rest of her life destitute. And if she does then go and marry again, all of the stigma of that divorce is following her around These words that today in our cultural context, they sound oppressive. They even at times have been used in damaging and dangerous ways. They would have actually in that time, in that place, in that cultural moment, they would have been seen as protective of women and protective of of what men could do to women in that place. And what Jesus is doing here is the exact thing that he does throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount is that he's unveiling what's beneath the surface. He's not creating a new law that says divorce is only acceptable in this one instance and that if you divorce and remarry that you're committing perpetual adultery. He's not doing that, but instead he's saying the way that you are using divorce is actually devaluing and it's degrading. The way that you are using divorce is not honoring the image of God in the other person. The way that you're using divorce is not looking out for the people who are most vulnerable in our society. The way that you're using divorce, it's taking advantage of the other. It's taking advantage of the privileged position that you sit in. It's getting what you want, and it's getting it at the expense of this other person and this other person's life. And so you're taking a system that's been made available to you And you're manipulating it, and you're using it in a way that gives you the advantage, all the while the way that you're using it is actually devaluing, degrading, and harming another person. I mean, Jesus is talking about divorce, but he's talking about so much more than divorce, isn't he? He's using it as this picture to talk about something more, to reveal the way that we use systems that have been made available to us that can be manipulated in order to make an advantage for me that while doing that, I hurt and devalue and disadvantage another person. Perhaps, perhaps one of the questions that gets raised for us in what Jesus is teaching here is this. It's where is it that you have a right to do something, but in using that right, you're actually hurting another person. Uh, or, or maybe we could ask it this way. If I am exercising this right, who am I helping and who am I hurting? We all have different places where we have some sort of right, where we get to do something. But who am I helping? Who am I hurting in that? Like maybe here's an innocuous way it could work itself out. You come home after a long day at work. You have put in your hours and you are tired and you have every right to sit down in front of the TV and to zone out for the rest of the evening because you have worked hard that day, but you have got kids at home that you have chosen not only to give birth to, but to raise and to give your energy and time and effort towards. And so if you choose to exercise that right, who are you hurting and who are you helping? 
My daughter, my daughter's on a lacrosse team at her high school, and she's a freshman. She's never played lacrosse before, and so uh, a week and a half ago, they had their very first game. And because lacrosse is a newer sport in California, and girls lacrosse even newer than boys lacrosse in California, really in high school, uh, th- they only have a varsity team. So she's a freshman who's never played before, who's getting her varsity letter this year, which is amazing, right? <laughs> and so they have their first game, and they're killing the other team. Like, they were phenomenal. They end the game 21 to 1. Like, they just kill them. Uh, the best players on the team played almost the entire time. Like, they, had, they got all their playing time in. And then the newer players, that this was their very first game ever, didn't play much at all, which in some ways was to be expected, right? But the thing that blew me away was the very next day at practice, the senior girls who were the best on the team, who had every right to have all of that playing time, they had earned it over the years, they began to go to bat for the younger players to the coach. And they said, when we are winning like that, we need to put them in. They need to get their playing time. That's how they're going to get better. They had every every right not to do that. But we ask this question in exercising this right, who am I helping and who am I hurting? Or even within the very specific illustration that Jesus uses here of divorce. And we obviously have very different divorce laws today than from the time of Jesus. But a pastoral approach to divorce doesn't create this flowchart that says like, are these things true? Then yeah, you can get divorced. Are these things true? No? Okay, then you can't get divorced. It does not work like that. But maybe, maybe one of the questions that should be asked when divorce is on the table for us is just asking this and exercising this right. Who am I helping and who am I hurting? Because there are times where you actually may be helping yourself and your kids because of an abusive relationship that you're leaving. But in a different scenario, you may actually be hurting yourself and your kids as you sever a bond that isn't yet ready to be severed, a covenant that isn't yet ready to be severed. A friend of mine says that divorce may be one of the hardest things to preach on because in the same message, there's often somebody who's sitting in an abusive marriage who hears you and who hears you saying you need to stay and you need to fight for your marriage. And what they probably need to do is to leave for their own safety. And there's somebody else who hears you giving permission for them to leave when they're actually the ones who actually need to stay and to fight a bit longer. Jesus isn't giving a new law, new rules for the right way to get divorced and the wrong way to get divorced. He's going beyond that. It's bigger than that. Don't make it so small. He's asking us to consider where is it that I have the right to do something that, and in that exercising that right, it actually causes harm to another person. And he's saying that when the kingdom invades your life and you begin to be transformed and you have this transformation of the heart, what begins to happen is you become the kind of person who doesn't just do something just because it's your right, but instead who asks, well, in exercising this right, who am I helping and who am I hurting? So that's, that's the first picture that we're looking at today. The second picture occurs next, verse 33. Jesus is recorded saying this. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the, great, it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
Now remember, remember to take the goggles off, we are not asking what is the new rule or the new law that Jesus is giving here. Because even with this, I've experienced people turning it into that. And when they do that, they're putting the goggles back on and they're viewing this disruptive teaching through an old lens. What I have experienced is some people in my pastoral work have told me they will not sign a contract because that's an oath. Jesus said, let my yes be yes, my no be no. They don't need my signature on that thing. I have encountered people who have told me I will not, I won't take an oath on the witness stand because of this. Jesus spoke against creating an oath, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't do those things. But if this isn't a new law, if this aren't new rules that Jesus is giving, then what's he getting at here? And again, to try to make some sense of that, we got to unpack some of the context that's going on. So in this time, in this place, a good Jewish person who wanted to follow the external commands of the law, who wanted to follow all of the rules, they knew that if they took an oath in God's name, that it was a binding oath. Because that kind of oath was taken so seriously and it had such significant consequences. What they began to do is they began to develop a series of like levels of how seriously an oath is that you made based off of its level. Because if you make an oath in the name of the Lord, like that's a pretty big deal. But so like, well, what if I make an oath in like uh, according to heaven? What if I make an oath on the earth? What if I make an oath uh, and a vow using Jerusalem as kind of my standard? What if I use my own head? And Jesus begins dismantling that sort of system and way of doing it. We do this all the time right now. It's a way of like manipulating language so that I don't have to either own the truth in myself that like that I am unable to commit to that thing, that I want to say no to that thing, that that I can't say what's actually true about this thing. What is it about me that I can't do that? Or we manipulate that language because we don't trust the truth with the other person. I don't trust the way that they'll respond. I don't want to like experience the way they'll respond. I don't trust them with this information, and so we manipulate language. We do this all the time in all kinds of different ways, like in the church, for instance. And maybe you've experienced this in the church. If you've been in the church for a little while, you know we have like our own language in the church, right? Like, like somebody who's new in the church, you should get a dictionary of the way that we talk to one another. That, that th- this isn't as true here in California, but like in the South, if somebody does something stupid, one of the things that they say in the church is like, oh, bless his heart, which sounds so nice, but it is really actually not. One of the things that we'll do, that we'll do here is that, uh, let me paint this scenario. Let's say that there's a need for more volunteers in the student ministries. And so Sammy, Sammy, who's fantastic, does a phenomenal job in our student ministries, right? Sammy works with our high school students. He approaches you, and he asks you to consider serving with them once a week. And you, like, you don't have much free time during your week, and you're hesitant about giving up another night. Or maybe, like, you just really don't like high school students that much, if you're being honest. (laughs) You're like, I went through that phase. I'm done with that phase. Or for whatever reason, like you've got some hesitancy about it. And so here's how we respond in the church when we want an out. Sammy's like, hey, do you think that you could volunteer here? And I'll say, you know what? I'll pray about it. (laughs) Which is our way of saying no when we really don't want to say no to somebody's face in a church setting, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, no, 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 no. Like actually, whenever there's a big and significant decision, that is actually my response, is that I'm going to pray about it. And so that's what I'm telling them is truthful, and I will call you a liar. And here's how I know that you are a liar. 
a liar might be a little strong. I was expecting a little laugh after that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be so mean to you. Uh, Here's how I know that that's not the case, and it's not just good-natured Christian women and men who believe that they like, need to pray over every significant decision, because picture this scenario. Let's say that you have been dating somebody for over a year, and they take you out to this great romantic dinner. It is well-planned. You, like, you can feel this anticipation in the air. At the end of the dinner that you see, you see like some family starting to gather around and some friends start to gather around and they get down on one knee and they open up a box with a ring in it and they look up at you and they say, will you marry me? And you look down and you say, I'll pray about it. (laughs) No! Right? So we, we actually, we use language like that in order to give us an out when we don't want to have a definitive statement. And so we develop, we develop all kinds of language and all kinds of ways that allow us some kind of flexibility. Uh, our kid asks us to do something that we don't feel comfortable with them doing, and rather than saying, I don't feel comfortable with you doing that, we say, I'll ask your father later. Or I ask my kid, I'm like, hey, did you clean your room? And he says, yes. And I walk into his room, and it is clearly not clean. And I look at it, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you didn't say, did you clean your room today? We manipulate our language in all kinds of ways in order to give us an out or to not have to be held responsible or even sometimes maybe it's out of our own insecurity or out of the fear of what the results will be of us being honest, of how that might affect our relationship, of how that person might hear it, of how they might experience it. And when Jesus goes through these examples that they swear by, by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, your own head, that's, that's the equivalent of what he's talking about. The way that they manipulate their language in order to give them an out, to not have to take seriously what they said, which, by the way, do you notice how he just dismantles each one of those, saying, like, you won't make an oath to God because of how serious that is, but then you do this thing, and God is present. God is present in that place. And you do on this thing, God is present in that place. And you do it in this way, and God is present in that place. And so your language, it does not matter what words you are using. God is present in those places regardless of it. And that when you use language in ways where you you are intentionally not being forthright, he says, it comes from the evil one. It's being used to control and to manipulate because we don't trust the truth to ourselves. We don't trust the truth to others. You, what Jesus says is that when the kingdom invades your life and you begin living this way that you're designed and created to live, when the goggles come off and you begin to experience a fully human life, you become the kind of person who speaks and who acts with integrity whose words can be trusted, who doesn't use language to manipulate in order to be seen or perceived in a certain way, who who doesn't manipulate their words in order to not have to be held responsible, who doesn't manipulate their words in order to always have an out, who doesn't manipulate their words because can't be honest with ourselves about what's true and I can't own that or sit in it, or because I don't want to have to engage or deal with the consequences or the awkwardness of being honest. And Jesus is saying, you become the kind of person who doesn't have to live like that. And it's, it's actually a more freeing way to live. And so he's, he's asking us, in what ways? In what ways am I using my words to manipulate or to control? Because I don't, I don't trust the truth to myself, or I don't trust the truth with, with others. And so in painting this picture, this way of being in the world that is a more fully human way of being, a way of being in the world that's how we were designed and created to be, Jesus uses the way that divorce is being used in their culture in order to 
challenge how people were exercising their rights in ways that were causing harm to others. And then he uses the way that swearing oaths was being used in their culture in order to challenge the way that language was being used in order to manipulate people's perception, in order to avoid accountability. And what some people will do with this is they'll put the goggles back on and they'll create new laws and new rules. There are now new rules about divorce and remarriage. There are now new rules about not swearing oaths. But when you do that, you're just reverting back to old ways of being. And you're missing that the sermon is not only inviting a new kind of ethic, it's inviting a whole new way of being in the world, which is why this is all framed around an interior transformation. Because it's about who we're becoming And the thing is that if you are becoming the right kind of person, you will then do the right kinds of things. If you are becoming more fully human in who you're designed and created to be, then you'll be making the right kinds of decisions because it's just become a part of who you are and it's the natural outflow of who you are. But it begins with an interior transformation, which by the way, friends, you know this, it does not just happen. It is not that one day you prayed a prayer and suddenly you were changed. It is not that one day you got baptized and suddenly you had this huge interior transformation. It is not that that just like sort of happens. Maybe for some of you that was the case, but for the vast majority of us, that is not our experience. The vast majority of us, we keep reverting back and we take two steps forward and then we take one back and we are in a process of being transformed and being changed. And so what we do is we don't will ourselves into transformation. We don't just like try really hard. We don't hope that we get transformed. But instead, what we do is we partner with the Spirit's work in our lives. We partner with the Spirit to open ourselves up in ways to let the Spirit transform and change us in ways that something happens inside of us. And Jesus gives these pictures. Here's what it starts to look like. And here's what it starts to look like. And here's what it starts to look like. So, so I want to I want to teach you a prayer today. It's an ancient way of praying. That's one of the ways that we open ourselves up for this to partner with the Spirit for the Spirit to do the work of transformation in our lives. It's a prayer that's called examine e x a m e n. This ancient way of praying. And, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend time going through all of like how we understand examine, and I'm not gonna. Sp- like go through it all, but I'm going to talk about it in a way to make that makes sense of specifically what we're talking about today. So, so here's how the prayer of examine works. There's sort of six parts to it. The first is this, that we recognize the Spirit's presence. We just simply take a moment in this prayer to recognize, Spirit, you are with me. You have been with me, and you are with me now in this. And then as we recognize the Spirit's presence, then along with the Spirit, we recount our day. We go through our activities during the day, our encounters, what things felt like, what our responses were. And as we recount our day along with the Spirit, then what we begin to do is we begin to notice. We begin to notice where we're aware of God's presence during the day. We begin to notice where we avoided God's presence. We begin to notice where there was some friction, things that didn't sit right, things that didn't feel right. And in those places where you notice some friction, maybe this is where you could ask those questions with the Spirit. Well, in exercising this right, who is I helping and who is I hurting? In what ways was I using words there to manipulate or control because I'm not trusting the truth to myself or I'm not trusting it to others? And you just sit with that. 
And then you, and then you move to receiving, receiving God's invitation to you. And you simply say, like, God, what, what is your invitation to me to do with this? What do I do with this? And you'll experience all kinds of different things at times. Sometimes you will sense God just simply speaking grace over you and saying, just know that you're forgiven. Know that that's not who you are. Know that your worst moments don't define you. Sometimes you will experience that. Sometimes you'll experience God's invitation being, you need to go and you need to make that right. You got to go back to that person and you need to apologize and it's going to feel awkward and hard, but you need to repair those things. Sometimes God's invitation is going to be like, oh, actually, like, here's what you, it's not just talking to a person. You actually need to do these, this work. You, you need to do these things. And then the invitation is to just sit in God's presence with that. And, and so we're going to, we're going to practice that here today. We're going to practice it in sort of a small way where we're just going to recount our morning. And so we haven't had that long today yet. And so like, so maybe there's nowhere that you've had some friction. Maybe there is already a lot of friction that happens on the way to church. I know that that is the experience for us sometimes. So here's what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to um, get into a comfortable position, put your feet on the floor, your hands in your lap, sit upright, close your eyes and kind of settle into the space, taking a few deep breaths. And as you do that, would you just recognize the Spirit's presence here with you? The Spirit that has always been here and is always with you, but turn your attention towards that Spirit. And I want to invite you to to just recount your morning, the interactions you've already had, some of the ways that you reacted. And notice just where you were aware of God's presence this morning already. Notice where you avoided it and where there was some friction. And in those places, pick one of the places where there is some friction and simply ask, was I exercising a right that was helping or hurting someone? Or was I using words to manipulate or control because I don't trust the truth to myself or to others? Simply ask the spirit that. Now ask God, God, what is your invitation to me here? And that invitation may have clarity, and it may not have clarity, and that's okay. But as you receive that invitation, would you sit in God's presence for a moment? And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at NGATECF. See you next week.